Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Between the Lines. And check out our new show, Just Between Us, every week on our YouTube channel. And please, become a patron at barrykibrick.com to help us continue our mission. Sometimes it too often feels like we are on the brink of disaster. But what if in reality the complete opposite is the truth? That is the theory that the renowned sociobiologist Rebecca Costa wants to share with us all. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick, and prepare to be in for a pleasant shock when Rebecca and I discuss her groundbreaking book, On the Verge. Rebecca, it's been way too many years, but I am so grateful you are back on the set. Last time it was in Puerto Rico. This time it is in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the show, Rebecca. Well, thank you for having me back. Well, it's a pleasure. The first book I read of yours moved me so much. I had to have you on, and we even at that time paid to fly you out there and do everything because it was just that great. And now when I see this once again, I have to say, you are ringing the rattle. That's, you know, you're, it's a call to action, this book. On the Verge is really about what you call the crowning achievement of humanity, and that is our foresight. And if we do not start taking advantage of our foresight, we could become, I'm not going to say we will, extinct it, if we don't use that frontal lobe correctly. Well, that's right. I mean, when you think about the greatest invention and product of Mother Nature, it's foresight. It's the ability to look ahead and predict that a danger is likely to come your way. And what I say in the book is, is there could be no greater advantage than knowing what the future holds, right? Not in nature, because you could avoid being eaten, becoming food, or being attacked. Uh, in business, the same thing, and individually. And for all of the, the time that humans have been on the earth, we've been fascinated with the future. You know, we've won, we, it, it, kings and leaders have summoned in uh, seers and psychics and, and you know, and, and predictors uh, to tell them, you know, how many offspring they were going to have and whether they were going to win wars. And, and we've just been fascinated by it. But today, we are going through a major sea change where this idea that the future is unknown and it cannot be controlled is no longer true. And that's because we are collecting so much data and that data now is turning into very precise algorithms that are allowing us to predict future events with unprecedented accuracy. But as a sociobiologist, what you used to deal with mostly is adaptation after something occurs. Now what you're taking us is to this new level to deal with it before. Yes, and I call this pre-adaptation. In other words, adaptation is when the environment changes, then we have to, we, it, we either have the things that we need or we get the things that we need in order to adapt to that environmental change. But once you know what's coming down the pike, you can then prophylactically adapt before it occurs. So can I give you an example? You can give me 10. Okay. One at Deal. a time. I'll give you, I'll give you one. <laughs> When I tell people that I can predict whether you're going to trip and fall and hurt yourself with somewhere between 86 and 90% accuracy that it's going to occur in the next three weeks, they shake their heads and say, that's impossible. You can't know I'm going to trip and fall. 
And I say, yes, I, I, I can. Because we've now discovered that there's a five centimeter per second change in your normal walking gait that's the precursor to you tripping and falling. So we can put a Fitbit right on your ankle and we can see that there's a change in your normal walking gait. We could ping your phone and say, hey, get into physical therapy. You're going to trip and fall with an 86 to 90% probability rate. Now think of what this means to the elderly who frequently lose their ability to live independently because they break a hip or a leg and that's it. They're in, re they're in assisted living after that. So imagine if we could prevent those things. And that's what this book is about. It's about pre-adapting. It's about using predictive analytic models and sophisticated algorithms and the first time, take, for the first time in humanity, taking all of this data that we're aggregating and being able to anticipate and prevent disaster. But you yourself warn us about that, your words. The problem with foresight and preemption, it's impossible to prove an event which has not yet occurred. So as human beings, like you say, we are not gods, you actually use that term, we are resistant to this. And I think the resistance may not even be so bad because I think if we make this a slower action rather than a faster action, I think people can absorb it. But that is the problem with it. It's that we're human beings and we, even though called for seers and kings and queens did, come on, we're doubting Thomases basically. Well, we are and there, there are two sides to this coin of knowing what the future holds, right? One of it is, let's use climate change as an example. We have the scientific data and knowledge. We have billions of measurements of the Earth's surface temperature. We know that it's going up. But we are now trapped in this debate about how much humans are responsible for it. So instead of acting to predapt, to do what we can, if we can, to prevent future climate change, instead we're in just this big debate about it. It's not whether it's going to happen, it is going to happen, right? The question is whether we're willing to take action on it. Now that's one side of the argument, which is uh, why are we behaving in such a stupid way? when science and technology and mathematics have laid out a very clear path for what's going to happen. But now let's take the flip side of it. Let's take the mass shooting in Las Vegas. Stephen Paddock. Once he committed that, we started working backwards. And what did we find? We found out that his father was a diagnosed violent sociopath. That is an inheritable uh, behavioral disposition. We found out that in June of that year, of this past year, that he had been prescribed diazepam, should never be prescribed to somebody who's got a, a family history of violence. We found he sent his uh, girlfriend or wife away to another country and said, don't come back and sent her $100,000. We found that he registered for 47 firearms and began accelerating on up to that date. Right? We found he moved 27 times in the last 10 years. If we had had all that data, we would have seen this man was reaching criticality. Something was going on very, very dangerous to this guy. But what would we have done? 
We don't live in uh, Minority Report land. You know, remember that's that right. movie? Not only do I remember, I was going to ask you right away. That sounds like Minority remember, Report. Doesn't it? Yes. With Tom Cruise, they had the precog police come in and arrest right. you just before you were going to commit the crime. This goes against all that we value in a free society. Because we know that Stephen Paddock, even after he broke that window and pointed his gun at those concert goers, he could have had a change of heart. Free will could have intervened. And he could have said, I'm not going to do it, and put the gun down. And then packed it up and gone home. So we're in a real quandary here. One, how much data are we going to allow the government to monitor? We're all freaked out that they're monitoring metadata on our telephones. Right? Are we going to let the government into all of this data and then use, using predictive analytics come and arrest you prior to you committing the crime? Or are we going to accept it and say, you know what, that's the price of a free society. Even though we've got the science and technology to prevent these shootings, we're not going to. I think we have to have that conversation now because, as you know, Technology is accelerating in terms of its speed and its effect on society. And public policy always lags behind. But in this particular case, with all of this foreknowledge available, we have to have our government leaders talk about this now. But maybe that's even the problem, our government leaders. We don't even trust our institutions. You even say we're, we're basically schizophrenic about the future because we're, we... We have these things, and there's also one more thing, and you, you hint at it, but I want to explore it for That's the law of thermodynamics, entropy. The problem is, almost no matter what we do, there's going to be an unintended consequence. You talked about cl climate change. We know for a fact the climate's changing. Remember when we had the ozone problem before? We had the ozone problem. What did we do? We eliminated all the fluorocarbons, correct? The ozone hole started to close up, and it really did. Mm -hmm. And what did that do? Keep more of the greenhouse gases within us. So it's also the fact that's really one of the key problems with dealing with anything in the future is you have no idea what the unintended consequence of even making the right decision yes, might be. Yes, but we're getting better. We're getting better at that. Think about the rate at which we're collecting data right now, just in sensors like Fitbit and, and sensors that are built into everything. Think about, we collect as much data now, right, as we did from the dawn of humankind to 2003, I think it is, every 48 to 24 hours, right? So that means Friday night, we go home from work, Monday morning, it's that entire body of knowledge has been recreated, right? So we kind of overshot our goal of data production. Now the point is, is that very sophisticated computers, soon quantum computing, will, are stringing all of this data together and we're finding patterns that we never knew existed. Predictive analytics right now is being used on Wall Street to predict the fluctuations in the market. And those who have those models and those tools are making a lot of money, which creates a situation where you and I, who don't have quantum computing and, and we don't have these predictive models, we're victims waiting to happen. This is why I think we have to have this discussion. We do know what the consequences are. We can predict them. And if I can predict today between 86% and 90% that you're gonna take a fall in the next three weeks, you know, as sure as you and I are sitting here, right, that in a year or two, I'll be able to say with 99.9%, .9 
uh, probability, you're going to fall tomorrow because that's how progress is going. We're getting more and more and more accurate. The point is, if I know you're going to do something harmful or negative, and I'm in the 99.99999 percentile, what will we do? What is our public policy on that? Well, you answer it with a question. You say, what happened to personal accountability? That's a large part of this equation as well. When we're dealing with all the data and we're dealing with all the numbers, if we still take out the human equation, which is still as predictable as it may be that I'm going to fall, there's so many other things. I could be hit by a car way before that, and your prediction would go out the window. So the question comes, I'm not, I'm not knocking this. In other words, what I'm saying is we must, like you say, have this discussion. That's where I think we have to concentrate on it because we are getting so much information. We know so much. I'm just afraid a little bit about, as you said, the Tom Cruise film. You know, you don't, and, and you say we have this free will. That balance is going to be one of the toughest things. I remember, in fact, the Mayan culture, you wrote about it in uh, The Watchmen's Rattle. And they believed, literally, they were positive that if they sacrificed children, they would be able to have rain. I, 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 am I yes. correct? I remember that. Yes. Now, they were positive. Now, we know they were wrong. <laughs> we know that within days, their, you know, their whole society just crumbled, it seemed like. So we have to be careful with the data. We have to be careful with who's supplying it. We have to be so careful. It almost sounds now that there is as so much to be aware of. It, it seems hard to digest as a human being. Well, unfortunately, I don't trust humans. I trust computers. They're smarter than us. <laughs> but we they, make they, them. And they're getting smarter every second of every day. And humans, uh, you know, we suffer from paleolithic emotions. And, and nothing demonstrates that more than our current leadership in, in the United States. I mean, look at the, the infighting that goes on, the territoriality. Computers don't have any of that. Right? Artificial intelligence just looks at the facts and, and generates a, a conclusion and makes a decision based on that. And so I feel safer. Unfortunately, I feel much safer and much more comfortable with computers. But let's take the negative side out of it, because every time there's progress and there's developments in science and technology, there's always going to be a negative side. When the Wright brothers, you know, first perfected flight, human flight, they won a lot of peace awards. I don't know if you know this, but people thought, well, if you could transport diplomats from country to country and, and easily do that, it will probably broker better world understanding and, and peace. Uh, they weren't thinking that those planes would be used to drop bombs. I mean, and, and the same thing is for, for the development of the internet. I mean, if we didn't develop the internet, we wouldn't have to worry about cyber war or identity theft or all these other problems. So there's always a, a dark side to any type of progress, right? I, you could probably tell, I, I'm, I'm passionate about progress and, sci and science and, and technology because I think the good that it does far outweighs that dark side. So let me give you an example of this. We're currently suffering uh, many tens of thousands of people are suffering from opioid addiction in this country and, uh, and other nations, right? It turns out that using predictive analytics, there's a company called Fuzzy Logics, and simply looking at your medical records and having you 
answer a few questions about behavioral markers. They're able to predict within 80 to 85 percent whether you're predisposed to become an opioid addict. Now we know that the vast majority of opioid addicts got their start on a legal doctor prescription. So my question is, if we've got the technology and the science to know that you're predisposed, wouldn't you want to know that? I would want to know that from my doctor. If my doctor said, I want you to take this questionnaire and I need to determine if you're genetically and behaviorally predisposed to become an addict before I ever give you that prescription. Because we don't have cures for addiction. We could ameliorate but we don't have a cure for it. And it is a devil of a problem to solve on the back end when we could prevent it on the front end. And this is where I think good can come from predictive analytics. I am so much in agreement with you about the good coming from predictive analytics, otherwise you wouldn't be on the show. So I'm in that same exact mode. But now let's take a look at the reality that is occurring. Instead of that occurring, what you're saying, they are now making it almost impossible for anyone to get a prescription opioid. Also wrong. Also wrong. Also you see? wrong. So the, we the, as the, human beings. The correction beings, is wrong. That's and the right. Pro and, the, and, and what created the necessity for that correction is wrong. This is it's why it. I'm saying people don't know about predictive analytic models. What, what I am saying is, is if I walk into a doctor's office and they want to give me a, a, an opioid to control my pain, I want to know if I'm predisposed in any way whatsoever to become addicted to it. And if I am, if the results show that I am in the high probability, I would, I would like that doctor to give me some other pain management. Right. If but, I, but I'm going to tell you why this is changing. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why this is changing. In the last two weeks, I was asked as the presidential speaker to speak at the at a conference of 6,000 of the top uh, spinal surgeons in the world. Now, why would they invite me to speak? Well, they, uh, like me, I, I, you're just a charming person. <laughs> so I, I would do that for just I, that uh, reason. Well, that's very nice, <laughs> but I don't think that was the reason. The reason is because I got up in front of them and I said, I am a scientist and I read all the same clinical data that you did before you started prescribing opioids. And all the clinical data we had said that it was a less than 1% probability that, a, that a, a patient would become addicted to the opioid medicine if you gave it in these doses. The clinical data was wrong. Obviously, it was wrong. And I said, so I don't blame any of you surgeons, because it's the number one pain medication that surgeons use. I don't blame any of you. But what I do now is I'm going to tell you that you can contact Fuzzy Logics and you can predict whether any of your patients are, have a predisposition to become addicted. And I said, and so now I do blame you because now I've educated you. Now I've told you that you should not be writing a prescription to anybody who's predisposed to become an addict. And so now when I'm all done talking to you, now I do blame you if you do that. Uh, see, this is where the beauty comes because you, in fact, you give us 12 principles will never, I can tell by the time, we're not even going to get into one of them, but you give it, but let them read it in the book because there are 12 principles of understanding this adaptation. But even at the end, you say, what stands in the way of leveraging these principles of adaptation to our advantage? And that's where I think that's what you're trying to, not trying, that's, I hate that word. That's what you're doing. You're saying there is a way 
that we can leverage these principles. We can get out ahead of these problems. Most of the problems that we have today, I can show you science and technology that could have prevented them. Well, you we say need not have them because we're, we're, we're acting, you know, a million years, from, you know, I'm an evolutionary biologist. Millions of years from now, they're going to look back at us and we're going to look worse than Neanderthals because Neanderthals didn't have the knowledge and they didn't have the means to act preventatively. But we're going to be the first society of human beings, modern man, who not only had the knowledge and the information of what was going to happen, we had the means to prevent it, and, and we did. We but, didn't, we just looked the other way and went, no, 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 that's no. just science and that's just technology and no, I'm just gonna go about my business and just go, you know, live, live my little life and get my money and, and, and focus on my career and, and all of that. And, and, and we, we didn't, we, we, we failed to understand the significance of this particular point in time in human evolution but you also give us the answer. I do? <laughs> you do, and I'm gonna give it to you right now back. Okay, you know, you know this is, uh, people need to know that many times when people are sitting in this seat, you know their book better than they do. So it's, just, it's not even a fair match. That's okay, yeah. I, well here it is. Your words, leveraging human nature, not trying to change it. I firmly believe if we just take that one sentence out of your book and take it to heart that what we're doing here is not trying to change human nature, it's leveraging the human nature that we have, the foresight that we are blessed with, the knowledge of the technology that we've created. We do that the right way, which is why you started this, what we must have those discussions that's going to be the saving grace. You're exactly right. We, we are at war with ourselves from an evolutionary perspective, right? Part of us is uh, we, we have instincts and we have urges that relate to the lower animals, right? We wanna cheat, we're greedy, we, we, you know, we, we do a lot of things that lower animals do instinctively. But we are the greatest creation of mother nature herself. We are, and, and so we have all this capability to rise above those predispositions we share with the lower animals. We can be better. And that is the great crime. What are we rising up to be? Do we want to be, you know, look, we've only got a 3% or less difference in genetic material from a bonobo monkey. The cat's out of the bag. Right? We've looked, we've broken down the human genome. It's only less than 3% difference from a bonobo monkey. It's not the quantity. It's what that 3% has allowed us to do. Go to the moon, develop civilizations, laws that protect the vulnerable. I'm saying that humans can be better. We could rise above. But we've got to look at the 3%, not act like the bonobo monkeys and, and create a 97% bonobo monkey kind of mentality. We've got to get out of that. We've got to part with that part of our, our nature and look at our higher self. And you, again, tell us the answer. And this is your words. What we all possess is the collaboration gene. And it is through the collaboration 
not the dysfunctional disdain that we seem to have by everybody else's opinion, but when we realize that all of those opinions and we listen to them carefully and then we look at all of this beautiful data that we have, the collaboration gene within us will save us. It will because by nature we are a troop-dwelling organism. Right, that 97% I mentioned that we share in genetic material with a bonobo monkey, we, we are designed to work as a troop and to collaborate. That is part of human nature. So when we get into this infighting and we compete with one another and we don't all you know, uh, come together as a group to solve these problems, uh, we're really acting against our nature. You know? Rebecca, I could talk to you for not only hours, for years. <laughs> I wish you lived close. I'm gonna end with your words here. And you just mentioned her name, Mother Nature. We now know that Mother Nature's hand can be forced. And with that knowledge, the journey to engineer better brains has begun. Thank you, Rebecca, for starting that process. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You are wonderful. And thank you all for joining us. Now, before Rebecca leaves, I'd like to leave you with these few more words from On the Verge. We stand on the cusp of a decisive transition, one which will forever alter the way governments, businesses, and individuals progress. For knowledge and for action combine to set us on a new course. To achieve this promise, we need only embrace a capability so powerful it has been reserved for humankind alone. I'm Barry Kibrick. Between foreknowledge and foreaction is the largest gap we must transcend, for then we will all be able to alter our ways. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Between the Lines, and please check out our new show, Just Between Us, every week on our YouTube channel. And think of becoming a patron at barrykibrick.com to help us continue our mission.